from WUFTFM. This is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. I'm so glad you could tune in for this episode here on January 7th, 2022, when we're going to be talking today about the role of the veterinarian in fish farming and aquaculture. And this, of course, when most people think of farm animals, they're kind of imagining the traditional sort of farm animals that we think of. I don't know, cows, um, poultry, and so forth. But veterinarians also play an important role in the farming of fish and other aquatic species for food and ornamental trade and research and so forth. And my guest today from the UF College of Medicine for the first time is Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd. And I'm so happy to have her on the program and welcome and happy new year. Oh, thank you so much, Dana. It's an honor to be here and happy new year to you and to everybody who's listening in. Okay. Well, you know, I just mentioned the term aquaculture. And I think many people listening to this program will be very familiar with the terms, say, agriculture, horticulture, uh, so forth. Uh, Is aquaculture roughly analogous to that, but just in the realm of fish? Well, it is. is. Um, It's actually, it's the farming of anything essentially from from water, from a water source. So there are aquatic plants that are grown. There's a lot of different types of fish and aquatic invertebrates like shellfish, clams, and that sort of thing. And then there's also even aquatic reptiles uh, that may be grown for different purposes. So it, it's a very broad term, and um, and then we kind of sparse it out, parse it out from there into what what we're talking about in terms of the production entity and uh, the intent of the production. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, you're talking about a, a, a great variety, then, of species if you're dealing not only with fish but also with reptiles. Um, so how is it that uh, any, any sort of one person can be an expert on so, uh, so broad a kind of range of animal species? Well, I don't think any one person can be. I, I think one of the things I really enjoy about this field is we're incredibly collegial, and because of just what you said, Everybody seems to have a different area where they're really strong, and there's an incredibly vibrant network of professionals that are constantly reaching out to each other by phone, email, text, whatever, to say, I've got this. What Does anybody have any experience with this? And that's part of our day-to-day work. Yeah, those sort of collaborative relationships are really wonderful. And especially in the age of the Internet, it's probably a lot easier uh, to communicate and really share information with some of your colleagues uh, around the world even. I mean, aquaculture is a a worldwide kind of uh, profession and industry. It is. It's very global. And frankly, the U.S. is really not a leader as far as global production. Most global production, especially of fin fish, occurs in Asia. Um, but I think the U.S., we certainly have played a big role in uh, the, the role of veterinary medicine and health care and welfare of the animals that are reared in these different types of settings. Uh, what are some of the factors that make Asian nations' leaders in the U.S. may be farther behind? Well, part of it is probably something as as simple as environmental laws. In the U.S., 
there's a real estate, especially coastal real estate, is very high value, so it's often not appropriate for farming. And we, in many cases, have very strict environmental laws, and people may not want to see a fish farm in their backyard. Although I think as the public becomes more informed about fish farming, they will appreciate that these tend to be very green industries if they're well managed. And so they're very compatible with some of the concerns that we're, you know, our society is worried about in today's world. But uh, in Asia, they, there are many small family farms where someone may just have some tanks or something in the backyard, and then there's also big industrial-scale farms. But they don't have as many regulatory um, constraints as we have here in the U.S. What is the industry like in Florida? In Florida is really uh, a very uh, interesting industry, at least from my perspective, because it's incredibly diverse. Our primary product is freshwater ornamental fish. So if you walk into a pet store and you're thinking about buying some fish for your home aquarium, if it's grown in the U.S., chances are it came from a farm in Florida. Um, most uh, domestic production of freshwater ornamental fish occurs here. Uh, we've also made great inroads into production of marine ornamental fish, which is complex biologically, but uh, the University of Florida and IFAS have a tropical aquaculture lab located in the Tampa Bay area that is one of the world leaders in developing the technologies to uh, successfully rear some of these species. Um, we also have a small fin fish production industry uh, for food animals, and it's probably primarily tilapia here in Florida, not so much catfish. Um, there's also a salmon farm, of all things, in South Florida, which would be a completely indoor system because salmon would not survive in our natural water temperatures. Our, our water's too warm for them. Um, and we have uh, alligator production here in the state. Uh, Louisiana is ahead of us by far, but we do have a, a vibrant uh, alligator production industry. And our, our biggest food industry for aquatic food is just uh, west of Gainesville and Cedar Key, where we have a huge clam industry. Uh, the commercial clam farming industry is the commercial clamming industry is is a farm industry now. It's not a, a take from the wild industry anymore. And there's a growing oyster production industry along the Big Bend of Florida. My gosh, that's absolutely fascinating. Now, uh, there's a lot to talk about in just that answer, but maybe let's kind of start here with the nature of the profession that you have in, in general. I mean, we think of uh, fishing as, as ancient as people, right? But the actual scientific sort of pursuit uh, of aquaculture, uh, how far back does that go? Well, actually, animals have been cultured, uh, fish have been maintained for thousands of years in some cultures. Again, going back to Asia, uh, where carp are maintained as have been very important food animals going back millennia. Tilapia also, if you think about... Um, some of the ancient um, biblical stories where fish were provided to the multitudes, those were tilapia, not necessarily from farms, but that's a fish that's very amenable to being in a community pond situation. It doesn't require very much extra care. It can kind of live off of whatever's available in the pond. So that type of culture where you just maintain fish where you can get to them when you need them has been around for thousands of years. And veterinarians' participation in this profession, is, is, that probably doesn't go back thousands of years, but it might go back a while. That goes back about as far as I do. <laughs> yeah, so, so let's... That's relatively new. Um, so the 1980s were kind of where uh, uh, Mississippi State University started a 
program in training veterinarians for aquaculture. And uh, uh, Mississippi State was then and still is kind of the center of aquaculture production in the U.S. because they have the large catfish industry in the Mississippi Delta area. Um, and that, that's not to say there were not veterinarians working in fish medicine or aquaculture prior to that. But that was, I think, really where a lot of where a college of veterinary medicine actually started to invest in training veterinarians to do this kind of work. And frankly, University of Florida was not that much further behind. Well, I would think not, given that, you know, Florida is, is such a, a, a state surrounded by water and, you know, many people uh, in Florida are focused on kind of life on the water and life in the water. Uh, now, the the kinds uh, of revenues that aquaculture produce, I mean, is it a substantially lucrative kind of industry? It can be, um, but it also can be kind of a high-risk, high-reward sort of industry. So one of the things that um, people that are thinking about getting into some kind of aquatic farming, one of the things we try to do is help them be very clear about what their goals and objectives are. And um, it's always easier to try to help somebody on the front end to maybe – you know, make good business decisions uh, rather than come in after they've made some investments that may not be so great and then try to help them see whether it's fixable or not. Um, so it can be lucrative, but it, it's generally considered relatively high risk. And especially the more intensive forms of production, which can be the more profitable, but they're also more high risk because you're carrying more stock and there's more things that can go wrong. Yeah. And I would think too that Unlike some of the other kinds of agriculture from, you know, growing lettuce to, you know, raising cattle, uh, those come with very frequently, at least in the United States, a long kind of history of people doing this and farms kind of go and get passed down within families and so forth in many instances. And people, you know, kids grow up doing 4-H and so forth and they kind of get their hands uh, involved in all of this. Is the same true of aquaculture? I mean, are, 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 are the people who are starting these businesses, are they people who have been doing this for a while or are they people who maybe developed an interest and a passion and are kind of coming to it and starting afresh? such a good question. So we do have in Florida, we've had some historic family farms that have, and by historic, going back into the early part of the last century, 1920s, 1930s, I believe is when the ornamental fish industry kind of started in the Miami and Tampa areas. And so some of those farms have stayed in, in families and been passed down, and some of them have grown and are very large and very successful and very global in their reach. But many of the farms that we work with are relatively new and somebody is essentially taking on an entrepreneurial role to, to try to develop this new resource. And the, these can inv probably involve a, a pretty substantial investment, given that it's a, a high-risk kind of endeavor. Um, you know, the, the resources to do this um, are kind of on the line here anytime someone begins this. Yeah, especially the more modern facilities where you really, there's a lot of engineering that's involved. Um, sometimes the permitting process uh, can take several years. So it can be quite quite an endeavor. And, and it really just depends. If you're going to maybe have a pond and put some fish in it, that's not such a big deal. But if you're really going to try to do some serious production that's going to generate income and develop into a, a business, then you're often looking at a substantial investment of both time and money to get it up and off the ground. Right. So 
what are some of the let's talk about specifically some of the aquaculture uh, that is done in Florida. I mean, you mentioned uh, clams out in Cedar Key, but but you know people have gone looking for clams for as long as Florida has been around and as long as there's been people in Florida. Um, is the kind of farming for that um, tremendously dissimilar from what people have been doing for ages? Well, the way that it's different is the hatcheries are onshore, so they actually spawn the clams and they get the seeds, so you can do selective breeding as you do with other types of livestock to get certain traits in your clams or your oysters. And then they actually, the state of Florida leases, has underwater lease sites that people will purchase and they'll pay an annual fee to use the bottomlands, as they call it, and they'll have their stakes out and then they'll go and the clams are put into bags that are essentially staked to the bottom uh, just off of uh, Cedar Keys. The busy, that's not the only area where clam farming is done in the state, but it's the, the most intensive. And then it's actually very physical to manage those clams because the, they have to be sorted as they grow. You have to decrease the densities. You have to change the size of the, uh, the size mesh of the bags because you want to keep the water. Uh, the clams are filter feeders, so you want to have the water and the algae that's in the water getting into the bags, but you want to keep the predators out, which are different types of snails and crabs and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, it is farming. It's just a different twist on it. Hmm. The ornamental fish uh, industry, right? I mean, I feel like, and this is just me guessing, uh, I could be totally off. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, every kid that I knew had an aquarium. I'm not sure if, if the numbers would bear this out, but is it as popular a pastime and hobby as it formerly was? It, it's changed a lot, but it is still a very popular hobby and um, with very different levels where the kid can just have, you know, the like my granddaughter has a, a tank in her bedroom with, you know, a few fish in it, and it's a very simple setup. And then some people will have their entire garage turned into a breeding area for some special fish that they're very passionate about, um, or their fish room, as, as it's often called. Um, so you've got all different levels. So it's very, very popular. The thing that's changed a lot is that a lot of the pet fish now are uh, sold, like in the big box stores, Walmart, and that sort of a PetSmart, those kind of places. And as it has gone to the big box stores, the variety of fish that's available to the public has decreased. So it's um, and a lot of the appeal of the hobby is getting some real exotic special fish that nobody else has. So that's where the role of the at-home breeder comes in, where the people will become very passionate about rearing a certain kind of fish or a certain color of a certain kind of fish. And then they may sell that through the Internet. And so that's really the 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 mechanism where people now get, the, if they want some fancy, unique animal that nobody else has. That's kind of how that happens most of the time. We don't have the ma and pa pet stores as frequently as we used to that would often specialize in a certain type of fish. Are there restrictions, though, on what kind of fish are available to these hobbyists or even people who are doing it professionally? Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, there are. Um, there are restrictions in Florida. We have different lists of restricted species. And there are some species like, for example, piranhas. You are not allowed to have a piranha in the state of Florida. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, they don't want those getting loose into our waterways for obvious reasons. And so they are absolutely restricted in the state of Florida. And then there's others that you can, you may be able to have, but there may be constraints on where they can be housed. 
Um, so yes, that's a great question. I am I am relieved to know <laughs> that nobody can have piranhas. Though nobody can have piranhas in Florida. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> I bet you some people do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have seen tanks of confiscated ones. So you're correct. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I mean, we we all know that in the Everglades, for example, there's a terrible problem with snakes that are invasive, and sure. one can only imagine the, the horror that would come <laughs> if just a bunch of piranhas were kind of floating around. All right, this is where we're going to take our first break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. I'm Dane Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd, and we're talking today about aquaculture. And here's a, here's where I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Francis Floyd, where where you come in in some of the arenas that we've been talking about, right? From from anything from, you know, people trying to raise oysters to people growing tilapia for food to some of these sort of fish, um, sort of fish uh, hobbyists and, and so forth. How... How do you, as a as a veterinarian or a kind of a specialist in this, get involved? Well, usually somebody gets a hold of me if they're having problems with animals, animal health, so animals dying or something like that. And it may be the uh, owner of the farmer or the pet owner uh, contacting me directly, or sometimes uh, because I'm an extension veterinarian, it could be someone uh, from within IFAS, one of the specialists or agents around the state that could be contacting me because a homeowner has gotten a hold of them. And then sometimes I'll uh, not infrequently get contacted by other veterinarians who may be working with a fish that I have some expertise with or a problem that they think I might be able to contribute something to um, that they're trying to figure out. So I'm kind of a generalist, and um, I do a lot of education, public education, as well as education of our students here at the University of Florida. But uh, usually when somebody reaches out to me, it's because they've got sick animals. Oh, that's that's bad news. Now, you mentioned IFAS, uh, the food, uh, Institute for Food and Agricultural Sciences. And those of uh, listeners who are tuned in right now, uh, many of them will will know kind of what IFAS does. But can can you um, describe a little bit about what IFAS's mission is? Well, IFAS is the part of the university that does, as you said, uh, food and agriculture and I think natural resources as well. And so my my other department, if you will, is uh, in the School of Forest Fisheries and Geomatic Sciences, where they have the Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences group. And so I'm part of that group as well. So we have uh, extension specialists within our group here that may do reproduction or nutrition or different types of culture. And then we also uh, interact with extension agents. So throughout the state, every, every every county in the state of Florida has an IFAS extension office. And then there may be a couple of agents in a small county, or there may be quite a few different agents with different types of expertise in a larger county, like something, something like Dade County, I think, even has multiple offices. So if someone 
goes to their local extension agent or the extension office with a question or problem related to aquatic animal health, then I would probably be the one that would be contacted, either myself or or my colleague, Dr. Yanong. Well, that means that you're probably a very busy person, um, given uh, just the the scale of you know, the kinds of problems that can can arise and the number of animals and, and the people involved as well. Um, how is it that you kind of came into this? You hinted earlier that maybe you were doing this um, from veterinary school on? Yeah, actually, um, I had an interest in aquatic medicine before starting veterinary school, which was very unusual back then. Uh, But I was lucky enough, when I graduated, I graduated from UF. I won't say when. It was a long time ago. Um, But they had that new program starting at Mississippi State University. So I went out there and uh, worked out there as a graduate student and then as a junior faculty member working in the catfish industry for the College of Veterinary Medicine out there. So that was how I got started. And then when the University of Florida started their aquaculture program, uh, I was, you know, at the point in my career where I was competitive, so I was able to come back. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it's, that's great. Now, when you go to work on an average day, are you dealing with a, a pretty big variety of, of animals and problems, uh, or are you able uh, to kind of um, specialize in, in one particular area? Um, One of the things I love about Florida is the diversity of species that we have here. I would say that my personal area of specialization, if you will, would probably be freshwater game fish, like bass and that sort of thing, because we have a lot of those in the northern part of the state. Um, We do a lot of work with bass pro shops. People don't realize that they have a really strong veterinary program. And so that's probably the area. I also work a lot with Florida Fish and Freshwater Conservation Commission. They have several hatcheries in the state and um, stock enhancement programs where they grow fish at a state facility and then release them to try to enhance the natural population so that people can have a better fishing experience. Uh, yeah, um, that's fascinating. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry well, to interrupt and, you. But, yeah, I mean, I always tell people if it swims, you know, they – they can call me. Yeah. Okay. So, so you might you might get a call one day about you know something that's absolutely completely different from what you were dealing with the previous day. Yes. Wow. Um, so let's talk, if we can, a little bit about uh, something that you just mentioned. You said that the the state will will try to release animals kind of into into the wild um, in, uh, to, for the benefit of people who enjoy fishing. Uh, is this something that the, the state has a, a big lab or do they have a, a facility where they're raising uh, fish in substantial numbers? Yeah, they, they have a couple of uh, state hatcheries. There's three, I think. Uh, one in the Panhandle um, and one on the West Coast uh, and then one in the central part of the state. And uh, each one has kind of a different uh, strength. But this whole area, that's called stock enhancement when you're raising fish specifically to be released to try to enhance natural populations for whatever reason. Um, but there, then the other piece of that that's rapidly growing in our state is what we call ecosystem restoration, where we may grow, not me personally, but uh, different types of either agency personnel or scientists um, will grow Uh, different types of animals and release them in certain areas for specific purposes. So one of the examples that I really like about that right now is uh, over at the Whitney Lab for Marine Bioscience, which is 
uh, due east of Gainesville. It's a U.S. facility. They're raising uh, shellfish there, mostly clams, and they're releasing them into the Indian River Lagoon with the idea that as filter feeders, they'll help remove some of the nutrients from the water that are contributing to these harmful algal blooms that are not only causing human health problems, or at least of concern to humans, but they're also causing a lot of problems with our animals and especially the manatee die-offs that we've been hearing about where the seagrass beds are dying. So it's all very interrelated. Okay. So the, I mean, this is two, two kind of distinct areas. What, what, does this, what kind of species does the state uh, release in, into bodies of water? To my knowledge, um, I, I know largemouth bass. They have the largemouth bass, the Bass Conservation Center, uh, which is uh, down near Lakeland, Florida. And then on the West Coast, they have uh, Red Drum, where they release those onto uh, the West Coast in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, out in the Panhandle, I think it's also uh, largemouth bass. And they probably raise some other stuff, too. I know that I've been on their farms, and I've seen, uh, I want to say, snook on the West Coast facility. Um, I think they may raise some of the brim, bluegill-type things at the freshwater facilities. But I'm sure on their website you could find out exactly what they've got. Yeah. Now, are they doing this because kind of the scale of fishing in Florida, just kind of recreational fishing, is uh, depleting the natural sort of supply of these animals? Well, I think part of it, at least with the freshwater fishing, uh, is that fishing in Florida is a a multi-billion dollar industry. It's a huge industry. It brings in people come to Florida, the fishing capital of the world, and they you know, they're not only fishing, but they're paying for hotel rooms and restaurants and gas and equipment and all this stuff. So they're supporting the businesses that are supporting this industry. So whether whether or not, um, I, I can't say for sure whether the, the animals would be depleted, but if they weren't uh, doing the stock enhancement programs, but they've been doing them for a really long time, and they seem to have resulted in very stable populations of fishes. Yeah. That, people enjoy. Yeah, okay. So so I understand that then. Um, can we talk a bit about the aquaculture that raises animals that are consumed by people? And you mentioned okay. that tilapia is one. And I mean, obviously, people have a tremendous appetite for seafood. Uh, and I wonder, you know, how does an industry keep up with the demand? That is such a great question. That was one of the things I was looking at um, before we spoke. So the the traditional method of harvesting seafood, where you send boats out into the ocean and they do nets and long lines and that sort of thing, those industries, those fishery stocks are shrinking at a in some cases at an alarming rate, in other cases more slowly. But we're not, if, if our human population continues to grow and as our human population continues to eat more seafood, we are not going to be able to get that food from the ocean. It's not going to happen. So you would be surprised how much of the seafood people now are consuming that are coming from cultured sources, whether it's in the United States or a product that's imported from another part of the world. Um, so Tilapia is probably the number one fin fish produced for food in Florida, but our biggest tilapia production facility in the U.S. that I'm aware of is in in the Dakotas, I believe in South Dakota, which is 
you know, that's crazy because tilapia is essentially a tropical fish. So why would you raise it in South Dakota? But they have thermal wells, so they're pulling up water from deep in the earth that's naturally coming up at a temperature that's appropriate for the fish. And I think that kind of stuff is is really interesting. Um, and then further to our west, in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, you have our channel catfish production. And then in the Pacific Northwest and the uh, northeastern U.S., you'll have salmon production. But globally, U.S. aquaculture production is just a small percentage, 1% or 2% of global aquaculture production. We're very small. So it's not even sufficient to satisfy the demand of American consumers? No, no, not at all. Not even close. Wow. I mean, so it may be that we could probably never then reach kind of equilibrium uh, in the United States, uh, maybe even because some of the, the species are just not found around here anyhow. Well, it may be that, and I think also there's things that could be done probably structurally to make fish farming uh, a little bit easier to do here. I think the permitting process is a big barrier for people, uh, depending, again, what part of the country you're in. But not saying it's a bad thing to have strong environmental regulations. I hope anybody doesn't misunderstand that. But definitely the regulatory environment is a barrier to aquaculture uh, production in the U.S. What are some of the considerations that uh, people who would be involved in aquaculture have to consider as far as permitting and so forth? It kind of depends on what kind of production you want to do. But the big one in Florida right now, and um, I don't know that I want to get into it too far because I probably don't know enough about it, but offshore cage production. Uh, they've been trying for several years to get a uh, experimental offshore production uh, unit in the off the West Coast, and I think they're getting close to that, but it's definitely been controversial, and again, just from my perspective, you know, I think that people don't appreciate how green these industries can be and how helpful they can be to really take some of the pressure off of our nat- natural stocks. And if they're well managed and properly located, there there's really, I think, a lot of the the risks and concerns, you know, may have been overblown. But anyway, that in Florida is a, a big concern. And frankly, in other parts of the country as well, uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest, the permitting process can take years and years and years. Um, Some states have streamlined it, and I think Maine is an example of a place where it is a little bit easier to get a farm up and running, so to speak, and and get fish in the water. But that's definitely a constraint here in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, and I think, too, you mentioned that it can be a so-called green kind of uh, operation. And I think for many people who you know, need protein in their diets uh, and maybe are feeling that something like, um, you know, the the beef industry is, you know, consuming a, a lot of resources or maybe is damaging to the environment just given the scale. Um, is, it, is it possible that aquaculture can be a more environmentally friendly alternative? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that and that you asked that that way. That's exactly right. I mean, I think people, when they get very concerned about aquaculture and what they perceive as some of the negative impacts, they're not considering the fact that their alternative protein sources also have impacts. And so the um, 
protein conversion ratios, for example, for fish are very, very efficient. They don't use up as much energy. They're, they live in a weightless environment. They don't have to stand and walk around. Um, they don't have to maintain a high body temperature. They're the same temperature as the water around them. So they're, they're a very efficient little production unit, regardless of what the purpose of that production is. They're just really efficient organisms. And so as you said, raising beef cattle you know, also has an impact on our environment. And, and, and I think that doing a little more comparison of that would be probably be helpful for having people understand a little bit more about where their food comes from. Well, I mean, I don't expect you to have all, all the answers, but I wonder, I mean, what are the primary sort of um, waste products of something like a fish farm? Because if you're talking about something like hog farming, I mean, the, the, the waste that is produced is considerable. Yeah, that's a, a good point. So I, my understanding, and um, you're getting sort of outside yeah. of where I, um, my expertise is, but my understanding that the biggest public considerations are there's worried about either uneaten food or fecal material that gets released into the water column. But I think the studies that have been done offshore, uh, more in California than in Florida, indicate that if you, uh, and in Hawaii as well, if you source these cages properly, where you've got a lot of ocean flow going through, so yes, you're releasing waste into the ocean, but it's 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 a it's number one is getting washed you know with the currents, but it's also probably a lot less of a concern than some of the other waste that we may be dumping into the ocean. Um, so I think it's green in that regard. Other concerns are things like if the fish are diseased, then they could spread a disease to native fish populations. What people don't realize is native fish populations can often serve as a source of disease for the farm fish. And so, again, in my role, helping make sure that animals, number one, they're healthy when they're deployed. The state of Florida has very, very strict rules about health of animals that are going to be released into state waters. You don't just go dump your fish into the state waters. There's very rigorous protocols you have to follow to make sure that the animals are not carrying something that is inadvertently going to be released. Um, and, and I think that some of the more recent work shows that in some of these areas where you have cage farms, that the wild fish can definitely be a source of problems for the farmed fish. And then the other piece of it is um, that if you're raising animals that are not native to a certain area, there's always the potential the cage can be breached in some way. And in Florida, I think one of the bigger concerns is hurricanes. But in other parts of the world, predators like big sea lions, things like that can get in and they can, and sharks, they can rip the cages up and, and release fish that way. So there's a concern if you're raising a non-native fish that you might inadvertently release that fish to the wild and then you're into the you know, realm of what we were talking about earlier with animals in an environment that they're not supposed to be in. Again, the state of Florida regulates that very carefully. So nobody's going to be rearing some kind of exotic fish in an offshore cage, at least not in Florida. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's reassuring. This is where we're going to take our last break of the program. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd. We'll be back right after this.
Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd. And we're talking about aquaculture today. And, you know, I wonder if when you are out seeing animals in, say, hatcheries, for instance, are you examining them in a way that has to do with maintaining what I think in the I don't know, in the maybe the beef industry or some others, they would kind of describe as herd health, right? Are, are, are there diseases that can, can spread to these animals and around these animals in an environment where there are often probably thousands or tens of thousands or even more together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're dealing with cultured animals, um, farm-type culture, then you're dealing with herd health. So you're going to be dealing with population medicine and population management. And there's, as with any other species that you raise in large numbers or in a crowded situation, there's always a concern about something being spread from one animal to the next. And so we try to Number one, eliminate that, make sure the animals are properly quarantined before they get stocked into a certain facility wherever they're going. Um, and then we, in an ideal world, we like to do routine health checks to make sure that something's not brewing in a population that isn't recognized early. And um, and then there's a lot we can do for preventive health care, too. There may be ways that we can manipulate the environment to try to keep, like for me, I like to keep everything just super clean because when you have any kind of dirt accumulate, it's just asking for trouble. It's, there's organisms in the water that are going to take advantage of that situation. So you have to modify your program to deal with whatever uh, type of unit you're dealing with, whatever species you are, but the the principles of sanitation and biosecurity and preventive medicine are all critical. I mean, can can it be challenging to kind of maintain the health of these animals, especially for any animals that might be growing in places where they might not naturally otherwise live? Well, in my world, I think if you've got healthy animals to begin with and and then you've got appropriate environmental conditions. So one of my personal areas of expertise is water quality, where you're really having that the water just appropriate for the animal, whether it's the temperature or the salinity or whatever it might be. And then a good solid nutritional program. If you do those things, most of these animals will do amazingly well. Usually we have, um, you know, really, really successful culture of people. There's, there's like the magic recipe. You do this and you do this and you do this and the animals will do great. Are veterinarians uh, consulted when it comes to, say, formulating a diet for these animals? Yes, we have some nutritionists that are uh, DVMs, veterinarians with PhD tra- level training in, in uh, nutrition. And then we also have non-veterinary nutritionists that work with these animals. And one of the things I like to tell the veterinary students is that when you're going through vet school, you're really learning about just a few basic domestic animals, the cat, the dog, the horse, the cow, maybe the pig or the chicken. And they're all very different. And you learn, you know, kind of the basics of each one, the anatomy and and the husbandry, the nutritional requirements. And fish, we kind of all lump onto this big plate that we call fish, but they're just as different and diverse as the mammals are. So a catfish and a salmon could be as different as a lion and a cow, for example. I mean, they're really, really quite different. And so each one is going to be very unique in what its requirements are. And one of the challenges in modern aquaculture is we're growing hundreds or even thousands of species. And we know, for example, the nutritional requirements probably of three. Oh, wow. So 
Who is researching this? Um, is it in industry insiders or is it veterinarians? It, it is uh, both veterinarians uh, who often work. We often are part of the veterinarian is usually part of a team. And so there's going to be animal care people there and having a nutrition person involved is going to be important and an engineering person also in many cases. So in private industry, you're going to have nutritionists working perhaps for a feed company or something like that. We have consultants that may work um for some for the zoo and aquarium industry, but they've developed enough expertise with fish that they may be able to help with certain types of fishes that we know less about, even if they're being cultured for food. So, yeah, there's a diverse uh, but very well-trained group of professionals that work together to make all this happen. In my conversations with one of your colleagues there at the vet school, Jim Wellhan, who studies novel pathogens, I've kind of come to to fear the uh, the potential for you know these kinds of diseases to to spread in animals uh, in a kind of almost uh, terrifying way. Um, I wonder, does the aquaculture industry have its eyes on these kinds of uh, novel pathogens that that might enter the the animals via some mechanism that might not even have been you know anticipated uh, and and you know does this ever happen where animals in some sort of hatchery or whatever face um, conditions or a disease that kind of stumps the people who are working to raise them. Yeah, no, definitely. And we do collaborate with Dr. Wellahan and, and his group, and we're very grateful when we send them something where, I don't know what this is, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they can give us an answer. We're very grateful for that. So, so yes, we have a surveillance program, uh, the U- U- USDA. Veterinary Services Group has a surveillance program that's pretty robust, and the more farms that we have that have a veterinarian that's somehow involved in the management of the animals, I think the more likely to prevent the kind of disastrous scenario that you're talking about. USDA uh, has an accreditation process for practicing veterinarians in the U.S., and we go through training every three years, and they do have training specifically for aquaculture, which is really, really helpful in reminding you what the in what the diseases of concern are. Uh, there's always a worry that animals, because they do move around globally, just like people do, uh, that you could accidentally bring something in from another part of the world and bring it to the U.S., and it could cause a problem. It has happened rarely. I'll say it's happened rarely, and it's been contained to this point in time, as far as we know, for the aquaculture animals. Ah, Well, that is good news. Now, you mentioned that so many of these uh, operations will have veterinarians that either work there or they can consult with and so forth. How many people kind of do what you do? Well, we would like to see more farms use veterinarians more aggressively, and that's kind of one of my current missions is trying to help farmers understand, and more so out of Florida, because I think in Florida we've got a pretty strong pretty strong infrastructure between veterinary medicine and our aquaculture industries, but not all parts of the country have that. And I think farmers, if they understand more what a veterinarian can do for their business and the success of their business, then it becomes more uh, palatable because I think a lot of farmers uh, may misunderstand and they just see the veterinarian as as another source of, you know, expense and they don't appreciate, uh, you know, the value if they use that person properly and if they have somebody that actually has legitimate expertise. So um, how many people do what I do? 
to my knowledge, there's just a handful of extension veterinarians that do aquaculture and fish-related work across the country, Oregon State, Florida, possibly a few others. But as far as there's the American Association of Fish Veterinarians, I think our membership is several hundred, and those are veterinarians that are in different types of practice, uh, including government agencies, zoo and aquarium, and private practice that see fish. And there's several hundred of full full members in that group. And then the other group that I'm very active in is the International Association for Aquatic Animal Medicine. And that group, I think we're over 500 members now. So you're in the hundreds, you're not in the thousands. It's not a lot, but it's definitely growing. And I think we have a critical mass right now of veterinarians that are well-trained to do the work. And I think the piece that we're working on right now is trying to help the producers understand that this is a good investment and will help their bottom line of their of their farm. Right. I mean, as you were kind of hinting at, I, I think that when these operations can see that veterinarians uh, don't cost money, they can help, they can really pay for themselves, uh, then you'll you'll be in a good spot. But what about the future of this industry, does it seem like it's going to expand and therefore the demand and the need for more professionals involved in the health care of these animals will increase as well? Oh, absolutely. It's growing very quickly, um, both globally and um, it's growing more slowly in the U.S. and some other parts of the world. But the the uh, this isn't going to go away and the need for veterinary care and as part of the team of people that are, you know, responsible for the animals is not going to go away either. And I, I assume that in coming years, there, there's just, I, I can tell you almost every day I see jobs advertised somewhere. Somebody needs somebody to do this kind of work. So that's really encouraging because our students are interested in it. Our students at Florida are, really have a leg up. Um, they've, they're well-trained. If It's elective training, but they, they really have an opportunity to get some good experience in this realm if they want it. And so, yeah, there are definitely more jobs, more opportunities, and I think that's going to continue to increase. And what sort of uh, extra training is involved after, say, a student completes veterinary school? So for aquaculture itself, a student that completes veterinary school, especially a student that comes here or one of the other schools that has strong aquatic programs, they're going to have a foundational knowledge enough that if an employer is willing to, you know, give them time to learn on the job, you know, it would probably take at least a year to really get where they're valuable to that employer, um, they can go right out of school into an aquaculture-type position. Something that requires more specialty tra- uh, training is either going to be, um, you're either going to get that experientially where either an employer or through some other mechanism, graduate school. And we do have, uh, again, through IFAS, an online master's program that a lot of veterinarians seem to be signing up for where they can get this kind of expertise, uh, you know, at least develop the foundational knowledge on aquaculture production, water quality management, fish diseases, that kind of stuff. Um, And and then there's also, for people that are really interested in the clinical medicine, uh, there's internships and residency type training programs. Those right now are probably geared more towards people who are interested more in zoo and aquarium type work than production aquaculture. But I think we're going to see that change as well. Well, Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd, thank you so much for talking to me today. This was totally fascinating, and and I'll confess that fish are a topic about which I know next to nothing. And so it was really wonderful to talk to you about this and learn quite a bit about it. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. 
Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd is a professor and extension veterinarian. I want to say thank you as well to Sarah Carey for her help with the program. And thank you to all of you for listening to the program. I'm Dana Hill, and I hope you can join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Mm-hmm.